Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis from Elsevier, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the pandemic and beyond. Hi, everybody. I'm Michael Carice. It's estimated that 80% of rare diseases are caused by genetic mutations, which is why so many of our recent guests have told us about pursuing gene therapies to treat and hopefully cure the conditions with which they or their loved ones are afflicted. With that in mind, I'm happy to welcome Rocket Pharma CEO, Dr. Gaurav Shah, to raise the line because that company's mission is very simply seeking gene therapy cures. Rocket Pharma focuses on potentially curative first-in-class gene therapies for devastating pediatric diseases that have high unmet need. Prior to this role, Dr. Shah was a global program head in the Cell and Gene Therapies Unit at Novartis, where he had strategic oversight of 12 functions and helped spearhead pivotal trials with CART-19 for patients with leukemia and lymphoma. He's a medical oncologist and neuro-oncologist by training, and in a first for Raise the Line, a Grammy-winning musician of Indian classical music. And Dr. Shah, it's great to have you with us today. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. So we like to start first with learning more about our guests, uh, get some highlights personally and professionally. So what, what got you interested in medicine in the first place and then oncology? Yeah, so I, I grew up in Fort Worth, Texas, surrounded by a lot of science-loving peers and, and other children. Uh, my father loved science as well and gifted me um, several science when I was small, took me to Cape Canaveral. So I... I guess my first interest in science started with astronomy. Uh, I used to gaze up at the night sky. My backyard had a small telescope, um, saw the moons of Jupiter, the rings of Saturn. And uh, that was probably in seventh, sixth grade, middle school, even before that. And medicine started being of interest to me sometime in high school. I was actually watching a it was a PBS show where neurosurgeons were manipulating electrodes on patients' brain in order to understand what parts of the brain were still important in function from uh, patients with epilepsy. And I remember stimulating a certain part would make patients feel something, feel an emotion, and another part would make them move their thumb. And another one, another stimulation of another area might make them feel a sensation in their left leg. And I was just intrigued by the connection between the physical, the emotional, the mental, and ultimately the spiritual aspect of our brains. So for some reason, I also, but in parallel, I'd grown up fascinated with philosophy and sort of um, natural philosophy and, and sort of thinking about who we are, where we come from, meaning I pursued a lot of spiritual pursuits in my, in my high school days. So neuroscience brought it all together right, brought science together with spiritual pursuits. And I wanted to understand where the seat of consciousness resides in the brain. Now there's a lot of books written about this, uh, and many of them are popular literature. So I thought medicine would be the best place to, to bring all this together. And uh, I became a doctor, ultimately went into neuro-oncology and uh, cancer research. And has that proven to be true? Has medicine been the place that brought it together? Interestingly, I think the questions have changed, right? I think that uh, all of the fascination with meaning and purpose now find different manifestations. Now I find that meaning and purpose I can find through rare disease drug development, 
in, in a much bigger way than seeking the source of consciousness, consciousness in the brain, right? So it did ultimately lead me to the right place, but not where I thought I, it would be. When did rare diseases come on your radar? So first of all, rare disease is a little bit of a misnomer because each rare disease is rare, but rare disease is not rare, right? So oncology, many types of cancer are actually rare diseases. During my fellowship, I discovered uh, a deep fascination with brain tumors. That's why I eventually went into neuro-oncology. And most brain tumors are actually rare diseases. And if you look at all the rare diseases, you add them together, there are probably almost half a billion people around the world who have some form of a rare disease, and there are at least 10,000 different types of them. So in my journey here, uh, at some point, various mentors and advisors had suggested that I may be able to help and potentially help cure more patients through the research of either cancer or rare disease than through actually being a practicing physician, uh, which is what I would have done otherwise. So somehow, maybe in 2007 or 2008, uh, it all came together where I made a move out of medicine, still being a doctor, but uh, into drug development and into cancer research at the time. Yeah, and as we pointed out on this program before, research into therapies and cures for rare diseases have ended up positively impacting the health of hundreds of millions of people. The top example usually is statins to control cholesterol uh, came out of rare disease research. So this is all much more interconnected than perhaps people realize. Yeah, and, and I, can, I can also add to that with uh, an angle from gene therapy. So right now, the way that we apply gene therapy most effectively is by addressing monogenic rare diseases. You know, the, the commonly known ones are Duchenne muscular dystrophy, uh, hemophilia cystic fibrosis. Uh, but, you know, Rocket pursues different types of rare diseases, Fanconi anemia, Dannon disease, which is a heart condition. And these are monogenic, means that there's a, a mutation or a series of mutations on a single gene that defines the disorder. And typically, monogenic conditions tend to be rare because they can't become that prevalent in the population because the population is usually uh, severely affected and the diseases can be fatal. However, once we figure out how to crack the monogenic code, we can then crack the bigenic code, two genes, trigenic, three genes, ultimately the, the multigenic code. And when you're multigenic, multigenic th gene therapy could potentially ultimately be applied to much more common diseases, heart disease, stroke, uh, Alzheimer might be actually uh, something that, that people might pursue uh, sort of as the early uh, gene therapy for multigenic diseases. So while we're starting in rare disease, it's a window to addressing a much broader and more common set of indications through gene therapy. So let's get into Rocket Pharma a little bit. Can you uh, give us an overview of the company and, and currently what you're focusing on? Yeah. So... We are a gene therapy company. Our mission is to seek gene therapy cures for patients with rare and devastating diseases. And while many gene therapy companies have been founded around certain scientific platforms, whether it's AEV, lentiviral, gene editing, et cetera, the philosophy by which we started was we focused on indications on diseases first, where there's a high end vet need, uh, where we can really 
potentially create a large difference in patients' lives for diseases that are devastating and often fatal and often manifest in childhood. So because we start with the clinic in mind and the disease in mind, most of those who started the company were healthcare providers and or physicians. And because we start that way, we're able to think about clinical development much earlier than most companies would. Even before we choose a disease, we think about what the clinical development pathway will look like to get us from here to approval and even beyond approval out to hopefully thousands of patients. And if that doesn't look right, then we don't go down that path. So we try to be first, best, and only in class in rare devastating diseases where there's a clear mechanism of action, which is on target. You're targeting the gene in the cell that causes the disease. And as we grow as a business, we want to keep targeting larger and larger diseases so that we can potentially treat thousands of patients down the road. So with that philosophy, we've actually siphoned in two different platforms. One is the ex vivo lentiviral platform for bone marrow hematologic conditions. And the other is the in vivo AAV platform for all other organs. Right now we have bone marrow and cardiac. Ex vivo lenti for bone marrow and in vivo AAV for cardiac conditions. And we may expand to a third therapeutic area in the future. So we've been around now for seven years. Five of those years have been as a public company. I've been here since the beginning and uh, we keep growing our pipeline people. We also now have in-house manufacturing to produce the cardiac therapies uh, all the way through commercialization. What has been your most promising work, do you think? It's, it's interesting. It's hard for me to choose which program has worked the best. The reality is that when gene therapy works, it really works. This is the only way that we can truly potentially cure a disease because we're replacing faulty DNA with corrected DNA. And if it's the faulty DNA that causes the whole condition, then by definition, replacing it with corrected DNA should correct the condition. And it almost always does. In, in other words, a one-time treatment is possible. A one-time treatment is possible. And I hesitate to say cure until we see these patients a decade or two down the road. But this is as close to a cure as I think we can get as a, as a human species, uh, you know, we are fundamentally uh, made of DNA and, and we're, we're, uh, D, we're templates of DNA that copy themselves and sometimes they make an error. If you can correct that error, then pe patients and people should have normal, healthy lives. So out of the programs that we've worked on so far, I would say that maybe the most visible and differentiating is the Dannon disease cardiac program. It's an X-linked cardiomyopathy, meaning, meaning a type of heart failure that affects boys more than girls, but affects both, both boys and girls. Boys typically, without any treatment, pass away in their late teenage years. And even with a heart transplant, they don't always survive. A heart transplant, they usually get by the age of 20 on average. And only 50% of patients survive a heart transplant over the course of 10 years. So it's really is a fatal, devastating diseases and hits people at the prime of their life, right? As they're entering their working and, and, and college years. So what we've developed is an AAV, an in vivo AAV approach, which means that you inject the therapy directly into the patient, in this, ca in this case, IV. And the AAV vector, which is loaded with the corrected transgene, goes to the heart. 
because the type of capsid that we've chosen loves the heart, AUV9. Once it's in the heart, it makes copies of this pro it basically inserts the DNA into the heart and eventually we get protein expression over the course of several weeks. And that protein corrects the missing protein in those boys who had Danner disease. And that missing protein is called LAMP2B. It's like the on switch of the vacuum cleaner of these patients' heart cells. So without it, you get a lot of debris and vacuoles and other literally garbage building up that needs to be thrown out. But the on switch is missing for that vacuum cleaner. So we supply the on switch, the heart cells clean themselves up. And we just released data at the end of last year, and we updated this a couple of weeks ago, uh, on the fact that every single parameter measured in six appropriately treated patients has improved. And that ranges from seeing protein expression inside the cell now, which we see across the board. Number two, you see a reduction in those vacuoles. You can see that on histology slides, just like a medical student would. You can see the vacuoles actually being thrown out. Number three, lab values like troponin and BNP, which are markers of cardiac injury, like, like heart attack or heart failure, decrease remarkably. Uh, we've seen on echo in every single situation, a decrease in, in left ventricular mass, which means the hearts are shrinking. They used to be very large hearts full of vacuoles. They're shrinking now. And we see improvements in how a patient functions and feels based on NYHA class, as well as quality of life measures. So every single parameter is moving the right way. Again, I think you only see something like that with gene therapy when you're replacing the, the missing DNA with the right DNA. Now we're in discussions with the FDA about how to, how to potentially bring this to, to a large, much larger uh, pool of patients with uh, you know, this devastating disease. And I think um, we're especially proud of this is because we were able to demonstrate the power of gene therapy for heart disease for the first time in our species. So I'm just curious about, you know, what was your personal reaction the first time you got an indication that this stuff was working? I mean, it's, 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 it's miraculous. If you think about the, the seven or eight-year-old boy that was interested in science, the idea that you can manipulate the DNA of a human being and cure a disease is just unbelievable, right? Yeah. Oh, so by the way, um, like, the most recent Jurassic World is about this. And they talk about how no one has cracked the code into getting enough DNA into enough cells to cure disease. And I said, they should have called the right advisors, whoever wrote that movie, because it's here. It's been here for 10 years. So someone missed a cue there. I just want to make that point. Um, Noted. But how I feel about this every time is surprise. Uh, every single time I hear an outcome, I'm like, there's no way that could be like, really? You know, and, and for Dannon disease, certainly, but for some of the other diseases as well, like LAD1, when these children who had who usually die of fatal recurrence infections at two or three or four years old are now living antibiotic and infection-free, going back to school, living normal lives. And this doesn't come from me. Our beloved KOL, Dr. Don Cohn from UCLA said uh, that hey, as far as he's concerned, these patients are cured. Not coming from me, coming from him. But in the sense that this patient who would have lived to two, three, or four may live to 92, 93, or 94 now, right? And every time we see in, in some positive outcome like that, I, I, I don't believe it at first. Uh, the scientist in me wants to look at data again, make sure that the data sources are valid, validated and accurate. Um, but then eventually it, it speaks for itself. 
you know, and we've been audited. And once you see it all come through, it, it, it just surprises me that uh, something this, although it's complex, it is elegant and simple in many ways, can have such a profound effect on people's lives. So let's bore in on the complexity of it a little bit, because I want to ask you about the process of drug development. We've got a lot of medical students, early career professionals in the audience, and um, it'd be great for them to get some sense of that process and where they might see themselves plugging into it or, you know, just at least create uh, the proper expectations for how difficult it is. Yeah, so typically to develop a an idea uh, from its nascent to the ultimate approval takes 15 years or so, whether it's a small molecule or a gene therapy. And this spans everything from discovery to candidate selection, to preclinical studies, to clinical studies, to confirmatory clinical studies, to regulatory discussions. And then even post-approvals, you still ha have to manage very carefully um, the sentiment uh, amongst those who might be early adopters and really think of it as a business. So drug development, it, it spans everything from science to true commercial business. So there's a lot of opportunities here for growth and you can plug yourself into any area. MDs and PhDs and PharmDs often find themselves drawn to the earlier stages of drug development. Um, some of the folks who are more in, in the business uh, end of things like to plug themselves into the latter ends of it and regulatory, I think, spans all of it. There's no so many points. I didn't know when I was certainly staring up at the night sky in Fort Worth, Texas, um, or even when I was in, me in medical school trying to figure out what, what, what path I wanted to choose. I never knew that I would end up sort of doing a job that is in some ways not a job at all, but in some ways is all jobs, right? It's, it's thinking about all of these uh, different drug development issues and integrating them and being able to deliver the message in a meaningful way to our partners and, and outside uh, supporters. So there's so many ways to plug yourselves in. And it used to be that uh, medicine and industry were siloed, but I don't know anyone who thinks like that any, anymore. I think everyone uh, recognizes industry and academic medicine and clinical medicine to be an uh, integrated whole that learn from one another and generously give to one another as well. Yeah, we had a guest on recently uh, in drug development who said that, and she's a physician, so one thing I never thought about was logistics. You know, we've got to get test samples back and forth across the country. There's this whole other, you know, piece of the business. So they're really, once you start looking into it, there's just a lot of a lot of different uh, angles to it. Both the CMC and clinical supply chain uh, were stretched and, and challenged during COVID. And I think uh, a lot of leaders have emerged in that, in that field. That's a very important point. I agree. So Osmosis is a teaching company. We love to have our guests give us some direction uh, to fill a knowledge gap or bust a myth or uh, something along those lines. So what is something that you're particularly interested in, and it could be related to what we've been talking about or not, where you would say, Osmosis, uh, you should make a video about that. What would that be? I would go back to the types of rare cardiac monogenic diseases that are out there. Um, and, you know, Danon is one of them. Uh, there's another program that we have in PKP2, which we call Pegasus, named after the uh, constellation, the Greek mythological winged horse, uh, sort of with the idea of bringing magic into the real world. 
So there's Bannon, there's PKP2, there's another program we, held, we have called BAC3. There are many others. There's probably 30 or 40 that are valid targets in cardiac gene therapy. And I think it's an elegant and easy way to demonstrate how a potentially curative treatment could work. You know, something where we're discussing tropism, which means what kind of vectors love which types of cells. In this case, AAV9 is a good one. There are also others. So how do you develop a gene therapy designed for a particular heart condition like Dannon disease? Uh, walking folks through that. And, and as I think about it, uh, when we recognize that there's a disease out there called Dannon with 15 to 30,000 patients, that we could have a real impact in a very big way, we went back to figure out what's the right vector. AV9 is probably the right vector. It's turning out so far. We then optimized the, the transgene cassette. What do you attach to the vector to go into the heart? Then you think about what the right delivery is. And we figured out by testing both local uh, delivery near the heart and IV, that IV was just as good, if not better. So why try to do a procedure for the heart when you don't have to? So vector design, the type of total vector cassette and transgene, the delivery methodology, the dose we have to figure out. And you can figure that out through preclinical studies in, in mice. We also went to uh, non-human primates to figure that out. There's a process for that, which is enlightening and, and teaches us a lot about what to expect when we start clinical trials so that by the time we're in the clinic, we've de-risked the program from a safety viewpoint as much as possible. And then we're obviously uh, clinical trials. We're doing trials and real people, but then the stakes are much, much higher. Uh, the gene therapy world has, in the early days, seen some deaths and they have stalled the field. So there's, there's um, well-deserved but an extreme FDA scrutiny. So moving once you're in the clinic, we have to figure out how to keep that regulatory dialogue um, educational, two-way, iterative, and respectful. So that first we're doing no harm, and then we're trying to provide some efficacy. And then ultimately, I would say that looking at the data set and um, there's a whole learning on, on how to translate this to uh, partners and stakeholders who could be supporters, both uh, from an academic view as well as uh, economics view. So that, that that's the video I think tells a whole story if, if uh, you're interested in making it. Happy to help. Well, that would be a fairly long video, but action-packed because there's so much in there uh, for everybody to learn about. Yeah. So I can't let you go without asking about your music. So if you could describe for us what that's all about and also talk about how your creative life and work supports, informs, influences your medical and scientific work and vice versa. So I, I grew up in Texas somehow fascinated with Indian classical music. And I spent a lot of time in India and with teachers here in the US. Uh, eventually I, I took up singing and uh, took a year off after college before medical school to, to dive in um, every day for 12 to 14 hours a day. That was my, that was my obsession. Uh, even when I applied to medical school, uh, the guy asked me what I think about all day, the interviewer. And I said, I, honestly, I think about Indian musical notes most of the day. That's what anchors me and that's what drives me in, in, in uh, a meaningful way. Um, I would say that, so I've been in a band since I was in eighth grade. Uh, I will say that despite my love for Indian classical music, I started a Guns N' Roses cover band in eighth grade. <laughs> so it, it influenced by, by uh, all sorts of different uh, bands and singers. But 
being in a band and and now having performed between 1000 and 1500 concerts at least over the course of you know 3 plus decades i i think i've realized that i've learned more about this job as ceo by being in a band than any book i've ever read or any training i've ever done because the lessons are similar you have to hire people you admire and you have to be able to step back and listen to them and you have to be the person that, who's not always talking and is always not sort of directing but more enabling coaching and um if someone's not working doesn't work if someone is working you give them a, a stage right and then there's also lessons in the audience and reading the audience there's an eq component to being a performer you have you're here for the audience and um, you serve the audience the same way that a, a CEO serves the constituents of the company, the employees here, but also investors and other stakeholders. It's the same performance in some ways, but but every audience member can tell when a singer is being authentic or not. Mm. Right, the soul comes through, mm. and the same thing is true here. You can't, you have to be authentic about it. Um, so yeah, it's 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 been a. The creativity from a technical view is certainly there, but it's more about the business ship and communications creativity that that's uh, that's helped me a lot as a musician here. I can totally see what you're talking about. That's that's fascinating. So we like to give our guests an opportunity at the end to leave with some of their best parting advice to learners and early career professionals who are looking ahead to their career. What's your go-to advice? Yeah, I would say the same thing that that I would say to. Uh, probably the, the 250 employees here now, which is that career growth and personal growth really go hand in hand. You can't separate them. And there's no such thing as a career move. Uh, every career move is, a, is also an opportunity for personal fulfillment and personal growth and to discover things about yourself you didn't know, um, discover strengths and gaps and help other people grow as well. So uh, there's no isolated career versus personal. I think these days uh, it's increasingly accepted that it's it's one integrated whole. That's great advice. Great wisdom drop here today from Dr. Gaurav Shah. We really appreciate you uh, spending the time with us. Thanks, Michael, so much for having me on the show. It's been a pleasure. I'm Michael Carice. Thanks for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to raise the line and strengthen the healthcare system. We're all in this together. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our episodes at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. <laughs>